go. We're going to get deep into the heart of Texas, as well as all other energy crisis issues on this week's Renew Gurus. Hello out there in podcast world. This is Renew Gurus, your source for all things energy policy and politics in Missouri and beyond. I'm executive director, executive, let me try that again. I'm the executive director of Renew Missouri, James Owen, coming to you live on tape from my undisclosed location here in Columbia, Missouri. Joined on the boards as always from his undisclosed location in Kansas City, Philip Frasica. Hey, Philip. Hey, how's it going? I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks again for all of your work to make this sound so silky smooth. We have a phenomenal. I am so excited about this guest, uh, Philip, today. Um, Kevin Gunn, who is with Paladin Consulting, he's the principal for Paladin. They work on a number of energy issues, but more importantly, he has been uh, he has been on the uh, Public Service Commission uh, for several years. He was appointed by Governor Matt Blunt. Um, Kevin, how long were you on the Public Service Commission? Five years. Five years. You were chair? Yeah, so I was appointed by Matt Blunt, um, yeah. and then when Robert Clayton stepped down from chair, Governor Nixon uh, appointed me chair. I was a, you know, there's this misperception that the Missouri Public Service Commission has some sort of partisan balance, and that's really only been by tradition. It's not by statute. Right. So right. I was, I, but I was a Democrat appointed by uh, by the Republican governor to fill kind of a Democratic seat, and then was elevated to chair by Governor Nixon. Yeah, because a, a little segue on that is like that tradition that we've kind of adhered to is when there's a governor in office, whatever party they are, the majority of public service commissioners in Missouri are usually from that party, and then the other party is in the minority. Like right now, Governor Mike Parson is there. There's three Republicans. There's a Republican chair, and there's two Democrats. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. And some people think that's intentional. It's some sort of, uh, you know, it's set up that way, but you're right. It's uh, just how we've done it. Has it ever not been like that? Do you know? No, I think, I think it's been like that forever. And a lot of commissions in Missouri are set up where there is a partisan balance. And this tradition is literally since it's gone back a hundred years or however long the public service commission has been into effect, that it's just kind of a norm that everyone has continued to, uh, to continue to adhere to. We, we were actually a minority um, chairmanship when Robert Clayton was first elevated right after Governor Nixon was because we didn't have an expired term. Um, and so once the term expired, then we became three Democrats uh, on there and took over the majority. But for a short period of time, we were actually a uh, Robert was a uh, minority chairman, uh, which is always a, interesting. Well, and, and the other thing I think is important to remember, and you know, this is 90 plus percent of the decisions you make on the Missouri Public Service Commission are unanimous. They're not yeah. partisan. When you're dealing with the big issues um, where, where you have those kind of partisan or it's more ideological divides rather than partisan divides. Right. And we've seen people shift back and forth based on, on where they are ideologically, but partisanship kind of falls away a little bit on the Public Service Commission. Uh, it's right. one of the few places that I think that's still probably true today as it was back when I was yeah, I mean, I certainly, and one of the things that I found interesting was, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here was because when all of this kind of um, crisis was going on with this extreme weather situation we had a couple of weeks ago, you had people on Twitter, and I know Twitter is very well known for be- people being rational and factual, but they were saying like, oh my gosh, there's like all these Republicans that are appointed by Mike Parson on here, and like they're doing all these terrible decisions about um, 
energy policy. And I, I think people like me and you were like, um, that's not how, <laughs> that's not how this works. Right. Um, but what, what was really interesting about for, for you was you really did, I think, during all of that, and we'll get into what that was, you know, kind of offer this kind of sober analysis about what was going on, which, again, you don't see a lot of in social media. And I thought, well, you know, since he was kind of doing that um, for uh, these kind of, you know, random lunatics on Twitter, maybe he could come on to uh, Renew Gurus and talk about what we just went through about a month ago what happened, what we know, what we don't know, what we think will be as a result. Because I mean, I think that, you know, you did, because I think you did, in addition to responding to information out there, misinformation out there, you also did some videos on Facebook Live, which were very helpful. And so I just thought you seemed like a good person to ask about, uh, you know, getting into what happened. <laughs> you, you know, it, it really, it, there was a lot of misinformation out there in, 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 I think there is a misunderstanding generally. I shouldn't say misunderstanding. There just isn't a really good sense among the general public about what, quote, the grid is mm -hmm. and why it's different in Texas than it is in the rest of the country. Why, why are states different? Um, why are regions different? Because there's a ton of layers on this, as you know, right? You've got, the, you've got the three interconnects. You've got the Eastern interconnect, which is 40 states. You've got the Western Interconnect, which is eight states, and then you have Texas, which is its own grid for yeah. most of Texas. There's still a part that's that's in the um, Eastern Interconnect, right. and that's in the Southwest Power Pool, because layered on top of those three interconnects, you have regional transmission organizations that run the reliability for those regions. You have PJM in the East, you have um, uh, MISO in the Midwest, which is the Midcontinent ISO, which stands for Independent Service Operator. Yeah. And then you have SPP in, in the West of the Eastern Interconnect, which is, um, and when we say regional transmission operator, uh, they essentially, the, the utilities and the co-ops in those regions give up the ability to control their transmission. Mm -hmm. And so power can be moved from one end to the other uh, and they also operate the market so it can be done in the most cost-effective way possible. Right. Texas has its kind of own thing called ERCOT, which is the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, which is the main purpose of these regional transmission organizations is to make sure that the lights stay on. It's, it's very simple. Right. Um, but they're supposed to do it in a way that's also cost-effective. Um, and, and that's what, and, and the Texas market is unique in the way that it's designed, both in terms of deregulation and in terms of what it's how the market is set up to encourage, as opposed to some of these other places where, and we'll use some terms like vertically integrated utilities, which means that the utility owns the generation, the power plants, the transmission, the big wires, as well as the distribution, which gets it all to your house. Right. In the Midwest, in Missouri, where we're used to, we're used to vertically integrated. So they're responsible for everything. Texas isn't set up that way. Right. Um, so it's it, there are a lot of layers. And I think that I think that's hard for the um, the general public to get their heads wrapped around, mostly because they just want their lights to turn on when they flip the switch. Yeah, yeah, they don't. I mean, like I know there's like so much that goes into all of this, and so when the lights don't come on, or when they hear it might not come on, they think, "Wait a minute, what is going on here?" And so yeah, so kind of the breakdown, like from Missouri's perspective. Okay, so you talk about the Southwest Power Pool, that includes if you're an Evergy customer. Right. which is mainly in Kansas City and parts of uh, rural western parts of the state. 
Liberty, or I guess it's called Empire, which is a Liberty utility out of Joplin. They have about 180,000 customers down there. Correct. You have the city of Springfield city utilities, my old utility when I lived in Springfield. And then plus you have uh, some other um, smaller municipal utilities that are in the Southwest Powerful. But that also goes into like Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and as you said, part parts, small part of Texas. It go, does it go into Louisiana? I can't. No, um, I don't think so. It's just it's because it's right up that El Paso kind of area in Texas, so it's kind of right up by the Oklahoma. Yo, right. and, and I, that's it's really a historical anomaly, right? Because that's what power pool started out with a bunch of co-ops getting together mm-hmm. to share generation and move power back together. And I think that the those kind of El Paso um, co-ops were originally part of of SPP. So they just when ERCOT was formed, they were kind of like, hey, we're we're OK. We're, we're up yeah. here. We're, we're fine. Don't mess with us. Yeah. And then um, MISO, which you mentioned, which covers Ameren. If you're in St. Louis or you're in a big chunk of the eastern part of the state and even parts of the middle part of the state, city of Columbia, where I live now, uh, and, and a lot of other smaller municipals as well. The co-ops, the rural edge of co-ops, and we had a whole podcast about this a couple of weeks ago. They're potentially going to be joining like an energy market, but it's not quite like SPP right. or MISO. Right. Seen. Yes, I've, I've I've already trying to get all my puns down for so right, ironically enough. Yeah, 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 that's right. So okay, so but with MISO, okay, so when I lived in Columbia, you you're in St. Louis, we didn't hear anything about like get prepared for rolling blackouts, but they did in Kansas City, they did in Springfield. So so why? Okay, so we should talk about why is it that though what that western part of the state had that problem, but the eastern part didn't. So, yeah, so, and, the, and and what happened in SPP is, is really is distinguished from what happened in Texas. They're really two different circumstances. Right. So typically um, you have enough generation in your regional footprint in order to serve all, all the load, uh, all the demand for it. Right. And if you can't, if you don't, you import power from other places and mostly SPP and MISO and the co-ops, they trade power all the time. Because for any particular day, um, based on the weather, if it's suit, and it, this normally happens much more in the summer because you're hitting your peaks with uh, air conditioning and things like that, right. uh, where your electricity demand is so high. So they trade power and you get your power from other places. This cold snap was so widespread yeah. and so deep. It, it literally went from, I think, Nevada to Pennsylvania. Uh, from Minnesota, uh, you know, Minnesota down to Texas. And it was brutally cold and, and was very widespread. Right. So what, what happened in SPP was the demand for an electricity was so high that um, they couldn't handle all of the, all of the load. So right. normally when they would go to MISO or they would go to other places to get that power, the demand in those areas were so high that they didn't have a whole lot to export. So, so when that happens, and, and this where it gets a little complicated, when you go into the Southwest Power Pool, one of the things you agree to is if you do, if they do have run short of power, then every utility agrees to a proportional load shed from their region. So even if Evergy has enough power to support all the KCPNL customers, 
if on a region-wide basis, they don't have enough power, Evergy agrees to shut off some of their customers in order to send power to the other, the other places. And the, and the reason why you do that is because if you, and this gets into engineering and electricity, all that stuff, if, if it, is, it is much better for the stability of the grid to have rolling 30 to 60 minute blackouts in areas of the grid than to have the entire grid so strained that your frequencies go off and, and, and the amount of power goes off and it can cause cascading failures throughout throughout the entire grid. So you, it, it, it's like um, when you uh, blow a fuse in your house, you know, you, you unplug some, some uh, things because you want your fuse to go back on uh, and you don't want to put too much pressure on that fuse, but you agree to do it through the entire region. Now, to my knowledge, I don't know the last time that has ever happened. I, I don't know the last time there has ever been proportional load shed um, in the Southwest power pool. And, and, and I, it had certainly hasn't happened since I was on the commission right. um, in 2008. So it's been, you know, it's been 13 years. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I'm pretty sure it didn't happen a lot before that. So this was just on, it was unprecedented. And, and, um, Texas had some other market and systemic and equipment failures, right. but but it really an SPP. And to be fair, at any particular time, not every generation unit is online right. because yeah. you've got scheduled maintenance, you've got you know forced outages. You just have you just so so and and again, winter time is typically not the time when you necessarily need to worry about your super high electricity load. It's usually in the summer. Is it safe to say like SPP, and I've read this in a couple of places, it's designed for really problematic weather circumstances when it's hot. Right. Not cold. Because I mean, we, you know, we don't mean like, look, it's Missouri, it's Kansas, it can get cold, but it doesn't get cold like Minnesota or Iowa or the Dakotas. I mean, we're just not like our equipment and all of this other, you know, all of our forecasting and our predictions about when we need power and when we don't just aren't aren't geared towards what we saw a month ago. That's true. I mean, I think that's true. I think that, that, and, and I, and I want to bring climate in here too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that this weather event was widespread and severe enough that um, there wasn't like an equipment failure, like there was in Texas and SPP from what I understand. Right. And, and the renewables, for example, performed at forecast or yeah. better. I think in SPP, they were actually like 10% better. So this whole idea that renewables somehow weren't available is, is baloney. Right. Um, it was the fossil generation. There just wasn't enough. Of um, uh, you know, the, right. It was just too much demand. And so they, in order to keep the integrity of the grid, they, they, they did these rolling, rolling blackouts and, and, and that, you know, te- like I said, Texas is a different story because you had yeah. equipment failures, you had market failures, um, you know, you had failures on a, on a lot of, de- as well as an overwhelming demand because of, because of the coal. So, but, but an SPP, it really was, they're just this, this weather event was severe and widespread enough that it, it was a problem. So for, to your point though, with, with wind, for example, in, during, in, in the SPP footprint, it's big enough that if Kansas City needs power at its peak at three o'clock, a lot of times there's like a cold front coming in 
somewhere in Kansas behind it, which right. means that the, the wind can ramp up and provides plenty of power for, for Kansas City at that peak. So yeah. the, the, the regional is designed for those kind of hot summer events um, to, to make sure that you spread out where your generation is coming from to keep the, the lights on in the entire grid. Yeah, because I mean, I, I, I did talk to a lot of people, like, uh, you know, I saw a lot of people on social media from Springfield, which fr frankly, we don't, I mean, we're starting to get better about coverage about utility issues in Southwest Missouri. I, I don't think it's as, it has been as good as it was is, is in St. Louis or Kansas City or even here in Columbia. But they're like, I've never heard of this energy market before. This must be bad. Like, right. they're telling us when we can use our power, who are these people? And I mean, you know, I was, you know, I would, you know, the, the news leader did a, a column about this. And I mean, I, I think ultimately the markets, I mean, like Springfield as an example, like buys a lot of their power from Oklahoma and Kansas, a lot of wind. Um, it's cheaper to do that than to build its own generation uh, for, for a town like Springfield, which is about 160,000 people. You have more customers than that, just because that's based on your meters. I guess I don't know what their meter level is, but I mean, you know, like people saying, like, well, why are we relying on other states for this? I mean, you know, ninety-nine percent of the time, these markets are really efficient. They save consumers millions and millions of dollars yeah. every year. And 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 honestly, I mean, and I I don't mean I don't mean to be kind of not sympathetic about this because anytime your power goes off and a bad cold snap is not a good thing. Right. It's a terrible thing, and it's an inconvenience, and it hurts a lot of people, but. But if you're looking in economic terms, mm -hmm. having your power shut off from 30 minutes to an hour once every 10 years um, is, is economically a, a drop in the bucket compared to a literal drop in the bucket, probably a drop in the ocean compared to the amount of money you're saving on a long-term basis by being parts of these, by being parts of these markets. Yeah. And I mean, because I know that I can give an example. This has been in the Kansas City Star, the city of independence. Has been there's been a couple of city council members who have said well, we want to build a new power plant uh, to avoid this in the future and don't worry if we don't use this power we can just sell it like they say that like it's super easy like they're doing a lemonade stand right. I don't mean to sound flip but I mean you know like for a city the size of Independence is saying we're going to build a power plant and then make a bunch of money off of selling that <laughs> on the market is very complicated. Well, especially if they're talking about fossil generation. And they are. Yeah. Right? Because, because uh, now you have the wind resources in Northwest Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma. You can buy it cheaper than, you know, those long-term costs of building, building a dirty fossil power plant, which may be more expensive if you have a price on carbon or if you have any other environmental regulations that come in. So it's really short-sighted in terms of, of what these markets are supposed to do. And by the way, at the end of the day, if independence is in the Southwest power pool, it doesn't matter how much energy they have if the region surpasses demand because right. they, are they are obligated to get all the other savings and to be able to participate in that market yeah. to do some proportional load shed when, when SPP says they need to. Yeah. And, you know, and I, yeah, that's right. I know that I follow a little bit of Kansas politics and I know that the legislature is opening up uh, hearings on what happened, but I mean, ultimately, you know, I know I have, I have supporters for this group that don't like me using the C word and that C word is climate, just in case anyone panics uh, that this weather circumstance uh, I mean, 
you have to look at this and say, this is such an unusual event, but maybe we have to worry about this. Is this could happen again? I mean, if, if, if we're talking about extreme weather and we're talking about climate changing, I have to think that, I mean, this is more likely to happen than not. Look, people in in, te in Texas in 2011, there was a very similar a very similar thing happen, right. and people were said, "Oh, this is such a crazy weather event. You know, what do we have to worry about?" And then 10 years later, it not only happened, but it happened worse than it did in in 2011. So the idea that somehow Texas was caught off guard that these weather events could happen, or A and B that that these are one offs. Um, mm -hmm just doesn't just doesn't work anymore and remember this this arctic blast that came down didn't just last for like you know 20 minutes it yeah. was a very widespread very long event well, it was that, like a week wasn't it i it mean was, I, it I, was yeah. a week where where i mean and and literally like a week after it happened you had texas going back to 50 60 70 degrees immediately yeah. after that they were at you know one degree so, so you had it within a matter of two weeks, you had um, 70 degree swings in mm -hmm. places like Austin and Houston. And you, yes, once you might be able to say, hey, it's a, it's a one-off, it's never going to happen. It's a once in a hundred year event. Yeah. But a once in a 10 year event is something that utilities plan for. And we probably should start planning for this. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately going to be up to the utilities that are in these markets. And I mean, as and again, you know, and I think that this is something that people like me, you, all the people that are involved with energy policy in the Midwest are going to have to say, all right, maybe there's a new reality to this that we need to be talking about. Well, and 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 it was interesting to see, especially in Texas, where the initial blame was on renewable energy, where people said, yeah. and it was just it's completely ridiculous. And and um, I've been trying to think of like an analogy, and, and because wind performed like it was supposed to, right. um, and 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 you could also, by the way, increase your wind capacity by winterizing wind turbines. Wind turbines work in Minnesota in the dead of winter. They work in Norway, they work in Canada, they work in other places. So you can win, you could, you know, like buying a car, you can buy the winter package for, for, these, for these wind turbines. Yeah. Um, Texas chose not to, to because they never, they didn't think they needed, it, but they're going to need it. And they're going to need to winterize their, their facilities because this is happening too often. Yeah. So we're dancing around Texas a lot. Let's just dig into it. Sure. Um, okay. So yeah. So you're talking about, you know, kind of some of the basic economic concepts between, you know, the different types of, of utility markets we have in each state. In Missouri, in Kansas, we have these vertically integrated markets where one utility in a certain part of the state runs everything, generation, transmission, distribution. In Texas, they're in what we're called, I think, I think we try to use the phrase restructured state where like your generation and your transmission are kind of handled separately. And that is something like, I, you know, and that's gotta be something you keep in mind when you're talking about not only uh, how the market down there works, but also about like how that grid works, especially considering it doesn't have another state or it doesn't have utilities outside of the state where they can go to and say, oh, look, we've got too much demand, we need more power. I mean, that is a big impact on, how you have to look at Texas and how that's different than the SPP, safe to say. It's it's huge. So so 
just to, um, you know, in, in Missouri, for example, the, the Missouri Public Service Commission acts as the substitute for the market, right? They're there to make sure that pricing is, is in line, that competition, there's substitution for competition. Right. Texas, in deregulated market or restructured market, the market is what op- operates this. And Texas right. has a couple things. So you're right. Texas does not have a lot. They have some, but not a lot of interconnects with the other um, with, with the other uh, interconnects. So you have uh, constraints on how much power you could even import if you could, if, if, it, if it was available. That's yeah. the first thing. The second thing is the Texas market is designed to encourage building of generation by having high wholesale prices. So, so at some point, the megawatt our price in Texas was $9,000. Normally it might be $2, but it's, it was $9,000 as its height. And, and, and that, that market is designed to get, be able to get those prices to incent generators to come in and build enough generation to provide, um, provide energy for the, for the Texas market. But, but a way to think of the Texas market is imagine if, um, it, it just like a cell phone, right? You can pick Verizon, Sprint, AT&T, uh, you know, for your cell phone provider. You can do that in Texas for your energy provider. You can go to a retailer and they will offer you different plans and you can pick the plan that you want and they will provide your electricity. But behind that retailer are the transmission and generation assets that are bought, owned by somebody else. So they're buying it from somebody else. So it's like somebody owning all of the cell towers and every company using those same cell towers to sell you that cell service. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not putting up their own cell towers. They're, they're, they're using somebody else's. They're just reselling that to you. Um, and, and sometimes it's a markup and sometimes it's not, you know, depending on what kind of service you have. Yeah. And I have to think, you know, because you mentioned this about um, uh, about whether they were prepared, like some of this equipment was prepared because you heard about wind turbines not turning. You heard about natural gas wells being frozen. You talk about some coal plants that were not operating at full capacity. Was it a matter they weren't prepared for it? Or do you think it was a matter of in a restructured market like Texas, they don't prepare for stuff like that because they're trying to cut costs. Do you think there's anything to that? Oh, there, I think it's 100%. They, they clearly made a calculation that winterizing, putting money into winterizing these materials or making sure that they had everything um, that they needed to survive or thrive during a, a weather event, um, they made the calculus that they didn't need to do that. And, and, and look, to be fair, and I feel kind of bad for him, but the CEO of ERCOT, who has since resigned or since said he was terminated, I guess, was was correctly, yeah. was one of the voices that said, we need to winterize these materials. But he doesn't have any, like in Missouri, if as a commissioner, I could order Ameren to do it and they have to do that. Right. Er- ERCOT doesn't have the power because of the way that the market is set up there. They might say, hey, you know, it's a good idea to winterize all this stuff. But if the companies themselves make that economic argument that says, we're not going to put in that uh, money in order to winterize because we don't think we need it or we don't, you know, it's going to, we need it every 50 years. And that makes us, e- that he- either helps our profits or 
um, you know, it helps us offer lower rates to other people in order to get more market share. So, so I think that they were not prepared, but not because they just didn't pay attention to it. I think there was a conscious decision not to make the investment in the infrastructure in order, in order to make it more reliable. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, and another thing, you know, you're kind of talking about how we, how they, how people pick these energy providers. I mean, like um, one of the names that I keep kept seeing come up in, in newspaper articles was Gritty. Yep. Uh, and they were showing some pretty, you know, significant bills from that. And that was one of those deals where it was kind of talking about like how they offer their pricing to customers. Like they say like, well, you know, we're going to not pass a lot of costs on you during regular periods but when things get bad maybe you're gonna have to eat some of that so you're 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 kind of hedging as a customer <laughs> that things aren't gonna get bad right right this is a complete kind of uh you know think of it as an adjustable rate mortgage where the disclosures weren't done the way that they were supposed to be done <laughs> yeah Gr- gritty is fascinating to me because they actually before this weather event happened they knew it was coming and they actually sent an uh, an email and offered their customers a hundred dollars to switch providers um, it's, it's the craziest thing in the entire world. They basically said, this is coming. It's going to get bad. You should switch. We'll give you a hundred dollars to do it. But the, but the gritty model was set up to say, um, when you, when you buy retail, there's going to be a markup and your prices are going to be higher. So right. come with gritty and we will just charge you the wholesale price. Right. What, right. but the, the downside of just getting the wholesale price is, while 90% of the time it might be lower than the retail price, the risk of it going up is passed along to the consumer, where in some of the other retail plans, it's not passed along to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So you pay, you, you know, you pay nine or 10 cents, no matter, no matter what, no matter what it is. So the company takes the hit if that wholesale price spikes up. But in the gritty case, they, they said, look, you may pay two or three cents, you know, for 90% of the time. But if it goes up to you know nine thousand dollars, we're yeah. passing that along to you, and that's essentially what happened to a lot of the customers, and right. that's why you were seeing you know tens of thousands of dollars of bills being passed along, and people saying cancel your auto pay because this will come right out of your bank account, and you may not be able to claw that money back. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, there's an investigation going on in Texas to see whether or not gritty. Uh, properly disclose those risks. Right. J- just like I said, just like during the financial crisis, when you had adjustable rate mortgages, where they thought, oh, you get 2%, what they don't tell you is it goes up to 15% if you miss a payment or if you, you know, once you hit year five. Right. Um, and, and it's, and it's a, and it's a problem. And, and, you know, when you have, when you're marketing, you don't tell people, you don't, you're not going to emphasize risk or the downside. You know, you might talk about it, but That's it's not fine the, print. You're supposed exactly. to be looking at, right? <laughs> right, right. It's like, oh, you know, you could be screwed on this if if we have a severe weather event and the wholesale electricity price goes goes through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, but that's that's a feature, not a bug, by the way. I mean, that is a feature of the deregulated market. Is we're letting the market decide, and what what the goal is is that if enough people don't like that gritty model. Gritty won't have customers, therefore gritty will gritty will fold and 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 not be able to survive in the market. The yeah. problem is is that the market corrects after an adverse event, not before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, when you talk about like it's being investigated, I mean, you know, 
you, you, there's no, I mean, you know, ERCOT's not investigating that. Is that like, I mean, like, who do you know, who investigates that in Texas when there's a consumer protection? I think it's still, I think it's still the Texas PUC. Yeah, they do have, they, the Texas PUC does have a role um, and they do have consumers and they, and they kind of, you know, if there's a bad actor among the retail market, they do have jurisdiction over that. So they, right. they actually, although right now, two of the three Texas commissioners have resigned. So there's literally one Texas <laughs> PUC commissioner yeah. um, as of as of this afternoon. But the Texas PUC does have a jurisdiction. And then you have another entity in Texas, which is the Texas Railroad Commission, which has control over the natural gas and oil um, uh, okay. companies. And so there's, there's kind of a weird mixed jurisdiction. I mean, Texas obviously was set up as its own country and they still to this day believe that they're their own country. Um, yeah. And so you have some of these competing jurisdictions and, and, and they're the Texas railroad commissioners are actually elected down in Texas where the Texas PUC commissioners are uh, appointed. By the um, way, I should point out there are states and many of them in the Southern part of the country where they elect their utility regulators, absolutely. like the Missouri public service commission and like, I can think of like Arizona, Alabama, places like that. You, you're up for election. Georgia, I think that was even going on during the Senate runoff. So it was, and, and and some of the northern states, North North Dakota and South Dakota elect. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, Oklahoma does too, and in Oklahoma, they're actually constitutional officers, just like um, so they have in, they have independent power um, yeah. as a under the Oklahoma Constitution. So. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a patchwork. I mean, we're, that's yeah. what we are. That's what we do. That's why we have the Fed. Now, now, interestingly enough, the whole the whole basis behind Texas's independent grid yeah. is to escape federal regulation because they are entirely within the state of Texas. Right. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which regulates wholesale energy prices throughout the, yeah. the rest of the country, um, doesn't have any jurisdiction in Texas. And even though FERC can do reports and they can advise because it is entirely within the state of Texas, there is no federal jurisdiction over, over what's happening in Texas. So you can't have the federal government kind of run to the rescue or order these things from happening because, um, because of the nature of the Texas market. But, you know, and I don't, I don't know how closely you followed some of this. I know Philip and I have been following this, um, there is a cooperative in Texas that has filed for bankruptcy, bankruptcy protection. Bezos, right? Uh, it was, uh, I, I wasn't, or Brazos. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's the oldest cooperative in the country and they file for bankruptcy. Now, I mean, when a utility file for, files for bankruptcy, it's not like, oh, those people don't get any power because it's bankrupt. They usually end up restructuring them. So I guess that really brings up a question to me, to you. What happens to Texas? I mean, you know, like, okay, everyone in ERCOT's gone. The PUC, all of those people are resigning. Are they, I mean, is there going to be a push for them to join a market? Is there going to be a push for them to, to, to do that? I mean, do you think that's something even Texas would contemplate? That, that's, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, I for one, so the, the, the chair of the ERCOT board is a former, was a former state regulator from Michigan, a woman by the name of Sally Talbert. She was literally named chair like the first week of January or, or named to the board in the first week of January and named chair five days before um, the, this event. And she resigned because the, gov you know, the governor called for everybody's resignation. Right. Um, and she would have been really well equipped, I think, to get into this, not only because she's super smart and, and brilliant, but 
having a different perspective outside of Texas, I think helps because you're not, Texas is so Texas centric that it's going to be very hard for them to get out of the mindset of um, we need to submit ourselves to federal jurisdiction or we need other states to help us out. What I think their first inclination is going to be is to say, we need more generation and, or, and to say, we need to harden the natural gas assets that we have already in order to make them more resilient in these cold weather events. I I think that's going to be their first, and I'm not saying that's the, that's the right way to go, but I think that's the first, that's going to be their first thought is, is that we can solve this problem by building more generation. Right. But, you know, transmission is, is just as big a problem for Texas as well. There was, there, there was some generation in South Texas that couldn't get out of South Texas because they weren't building uh, enough. They didn't build enough transmission. Right. You, you, <laughs> and interestingly enough, tax, and, and I'll give credit where credit's due. Uh, Texas created these CRES zones, which were renewable energy zones, um, which actually spurred the development of a lot of wind and renewables in Texas. And, and, they, and, and it was kind of viewed in a lot of places as a model for uh, renewable energy development. Yeah. And so they, they should get a lot of credit for, for doing that. Um, unfortunately, it's become so polarized that instead of saying, well, we need to build more transmission to unlock some more of those yeah. wind and renewable assets, and we need to build more so- solar comes out of this look in every jurisdiction comes out of this looking like a dream because solar actually performed really well um, in every single um Interconnect in Texas and SBP and MISO. Solar went was fantastic, um, but instead of doing that, there's going to be the leap of we just need more natural gas plants or we need more coal plants because of this idea that fossil generation is the only thing that gives you base load reliability, which is just it's, it's a fallacy that um, that I that actually I think that that because even though they're not seeing it, that this weather event really demonstrated that that it's not the most reliable um, yeah. form of energy. Yeah, I mean, like in Minnesota, the public regulators up there have already said that you don't need baseload with, with, with coal and natural gas. I mean, there's already cases they've dealt with with Excel on that very issue. But you hear Governor Abbott on television saying he's already blaming you know, Congress, AOC, the Green New Deal, which isn't even in place, saying that you know, we think that this is all renewables' fault. Um, and, and- and those cred zones were put into place by Governor Perry, and, and and they and they there was no federal intervention because Texas is its own grid. And the place where it had the least amount of problems was El Paso, which is part of SPP, and we're <laughs> relying on other states to get to get power. So right. it's it's really it's a, they, they're they're build and I understand. I mean, you understand this too. This political idea where we yeah. become some polarized, where if you're not having a coal sandwich for dinner, you know, you're not Republican enough because fossil fuels is the only thing that goes and and renewable. But but that's not that's the good news is is that's not what utilities see in their planning. Right. It's not what other states see, and it's not at the end of the day what these reports are going to bear out. Um, they're going to bear out that the wind and solar performed as expected. Yet, did some turbines freeze? Absolutely, they did. Hey, I try, I've been trying to come up with a, an analogy, and this is a terrible analogy, but I just I want to give some. So, imagine you're driving down the street in a, in your car, and you see a moped, right? That's about a mile ahead of you, 
and the moped's going along at 30 miles an hour and they're, and they're going fine. And it's doing, and you're, but you're going 40 because you're in a car, right? right? Then the moped stops at a stop sign and you're, you press on your brakes and your brakes fail and you run into the moped. Is it the moped's fault for not going fast enough? Or is it your equipment failure that caused the accident? And in many ways, if you look at that, where nobody expected wind to, to be 70% of, of Texas generation, yeah. you know, but, it, it, but what did they expected it to be? They did or did a little bit better. And yeah. it was the equipment failure on behalf of the fossil generation that caused the problem. And, and so you, you get these arguments that say, oh, there's too much wind, there's too much wind. No. Uh, we don't expect wind to perform at that level, but where, but it performed exactly the way it was. And if you wanted to add more wind on the system, you could actually expect wind to perform more. At one point in Texas, 40% of its fossil generation was offline. Yeah. I mean, it's a really an incredible stat when you look at like the, I mean, the abject failure at so many different levels during this crisis and I mean, really what it sounds like what we're talking about is no one can force Texas to do anything here. Or can they can't, they, they, uh, yeah. they, they, they can't, they cannot. And, 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 <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and, and even ERCOT itself doesn't necessarily have the power to force companies to do certain things. They have some power for reliability, but they don't, they don't have all the power that a public service commission would have or, <laughs> They're just like, they're just like these, I mean, because SPP is not a government entity. MISO is not a government entity. Correct. They're regulated, but they're like, I mean, they're not for profits that work with all of these companies or these utility companies. I mean, that's the same way it operates in Texas for them. Right. Yeah. Right. But there's no, but there's no regulator on top of that. I mean, typically it's the governor's <laughs> office or, yeah. or the Texas PUC that does that, right. but, but MISO and SPP have, have the federal energy regulatory commission that makes sure that they're doing as well as the North American reliability corporation. Um, you know, right. all of these other government entities or quasi government entities that say you have to do X, Y, and Z, uh, or you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas doesn't, doesn't have that. I, I will be fascinated to see whether there is a political backlash against Governor Abbott mm-hmm. because all of these things, you know, there's a direct line in Texas to governance of their electrical grid to the governor. Well, I know you're, you're kind of a political guy like me on, on certain things, but I'll tell you who looked good, if anybody did, and this was uh, Beto O'Rourke helping those people down there who were out of power and didn't have any, I mean, he, I mean, I almost think that he might've rehabilitated himself politically uh, just by looking like a helping people down there. Well, it certainly is in and of itself, but also compared to Senator Cruz, who, you know, picked up and went to Cancun, uh, you, you know, yeah. that's people expect their politicians to help out in a crisis. And, and, you know, this is the other thing, you know, you talk about them complaining about AOC, AOC raised $3 million from her supporters to help out Texas and went down and actually delivered food, delivered water, delivered the stuff that they needed to do. And, and I think that that's the difference between action and talk. And, and yeah. did Beto and Rourke and AOC do that for political purposes? Of course they did. Of course. Of course they did. But when the result is good, when the result is people getting fed and people getting water and people yeah. having their electricity turned on, it, it looks less political. But I mean, that's the whole part of governing is is being effective and getting things I tend done. I think that good politics should help people. <laughs> right. 
Right. I agree with 100%, right? And like it's, just, it, there's yeah. nothing wrong with doing the right thing for the for political reasons, right? I mean, it's Yeah, they they hate AOC cuz she's really good at this. I think it just drives them nuts that she's Agreed. so effective at what she does. Agree. And I mean, how brilliant was her to say I'm going to raise money for Texas, even though I don't have anything to do it. I think it's the right thing to do and raising 3 million bucks. I mean, it's unbelievable. Especially when you saw lawmakers from Texas. And I know that it could have been very easy to have been petty when they wouldn't vote for uh, relief for the Superstorm. Sandy said like, oh, well, we don't want to go help those states. And then you see this response, I think really does emphasize, um, yeah, there is a, there's, there's a political angle to this too, which I think... We could probably spend another hour or so talking about. <laughs> well, you know, there's an old there's an old old joke that what a liberal is a conservative who's been robbed, and yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, you know, um, uh, maybe you could say the same thing that a Texas is a climate denier until you know a massive weather event shuts off their power for two days, and, yeah. and it's very possible, or you hope that what these events show and what people seize on is saying. This is a problem, but it is not an unsolvable problem. It is not right. a problem that we can't overcome right. both in the short term and the long term. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, yeah, that's why I think a lot of people say, like, well, what are you gonna do? It's it's too hot, it's weather, there's no solution to this. I, I just think that lacks such imagination from people in policy areas. I, there's I agree. I mean, this is this is. And, I, and again, to be fair, this idea of Texas of, hey, we're going we're gonna to take places that are renewable energy rich and we're going to develop them and we're going to, which means there's going to be investment in the state, which means they're going to have workers, which is going to be infrastructure, we're going to put it in the ground, was a great idea. Now, now, you can argue about how it was set up and what the incentives were. You can argue about all of that structure. But to your point, it was an idea that says, we're going to take this asset that we have and we're going to try to do what we can to both to use it to help our state economically, but also from an electricity delivery standpoint. Yeah. And, and that is the type of thinking you need to have across the country. And that's why, we, we, look, the Green New Deal, you can argue around the edges about, about whether it's too expensive or what it's going to mean for GDP and all that other kind of stuff. But there are clearly energy-related infrastructure projects that could be done today. Uh, and, and most of them are renewable projects or some sort of, you know, climate positive related projects that would create jobs, create economic development for the states and go a long way to helping reduce or mit mitigate climate issues. And those are ready today. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and this whole, I, I've, I've never quite understood this whole idea of being against these projects when you can make as good an economic argument for building them as you can a climate argument. There are so many economic arguments for this, for renewables and, and for innovating the grid and all these other things. And yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, I just think it is, I, I personally think it is like the, one of the best new things, the new directions this country can go, which is the reason I like the work I'm doing because I think it is moving in a direction that we need to be going not just for the environment, because I think we're, we're a country of innovators and of pioneers. And this seems like the new frontier to me. Well, and, and, and the good news is, is this is taking place without government 
happening, right? Private corporations, both on the the developer side that are saying we want to develop transmission and renewable projects, but on the demand response side for corporations, on the um, storage side, on, you know, almost every major car manufacturer has said, we're going to all electrics. We're getting rid of the internal combustion engine and moving to either hybrids or uh, or all electric. Yeah. And, and so the, the market is saying, you know, what, what the free marketers want to point to, the market is saying that this is good economics because yeah. very sophisticated Fortune 500 companies are saying, this is important to us, but we also think we can make some money off of it. And, and, and this helps us. Walmart, for, for all the criticism of Walmart, Walmart yeah. has been a leader in terms of demand response. Oh, and, yeah and have been brilliant about it and things that are completely invisible to the customer, whether their freezers are turned down a couple degrees or whether the lights dim a little bit, you don't know from one visit to the Walmart to the next, but it helps shave load and it, and it, and in net metering areas where Walmart can make money off of it, 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 they're making, they're, they're doing really well at it and it's helping them save money. Well, yeah, the, the VP in charge of all that, Steve Chris, is a guy that we work with a lot because they're, they're always trying to find ways to get more access to renewable energy and energy efficiency here in the state. He's out of Bentonville. He's, I think, you know, had a kid, has a kid at Mizzou, so he's up here a lot. And I mean, they're very serious about that. And it's, um, and it makes money for them. It's not, they're not doing it necessarily because it's just altruism, certainly, they're doing it because it, it, it's like you're in a market, you're in a retail situation where you make your margins to, pennies of your profit and so you've got to find that money somewhere to, to make that profit a- a- absolutely when you're when you are when you are that cost competitive mm-hmm. everything that you can do to get rid of to lower your overhead and, and in many cases electricity costs and utility costs are the largest kind of monthly outlay of cash for companies outside of HR issues, outside of salaries and benefits. It's usually a lot of times you see salaries and benefits are A and B, it's, it's utilities, um, especially if you have large retailers that are occupying big spaces. Uh, and, and imagine if you're growing, you know, and, and this is a new industry too, but when you're growing medical marijuana, your mm-hmm. electric bill is- Oh, yeah. Food. We've food talked food. to those people about that. That is a, that, those, especially indoors- Right. With that indoor cultivation, that is so much energy they use for that. I, I was uh, I was at a, sem- a NARU, a National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. This was years ago, but a 90,000 square foot growing facility in Colorado, their monthly electric bill was $1 million. Yeah. And the crazy part is, is they can't write a check because they can't put that money in the federal banking system. So they had to pay, you know, with money orders and 7-Eleven money orders and bags of cash and other things, but Did it's you know crazy. That, Philip, that the medical marijuana, the, the 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 recreational marijuana people can't use banks for all this stuff. Yeah, I had seen that. And yeah, they're trying to crazy. figure that out. And so then they've got these huge bills that they they can't <laughs> they can't write a check for. Colorado like, at one point was looking at starting their own state chartered bank in order to help out their um, the the growers in their state. Wow. Um, absent federal federal regulation but it's a it's a huge it is, because it's still illegal under federal law yeah. federal banking system you can't be a federally uh chartered or federally insured facility if you're taking money um 
from marijuana growers. So it's yeah. it's a real it's a real problem. I mean that's that begs the question. But if you're looking at like new industries, if you're looking at places that are coming up, electricity usage is a huge part of it, and yeah. they're going to try to you they're going to try to cut down on those costs as as much as possible. You know it's it's why charging you know you charge up your electric vehicles they want you to do it at night. Um, yeah, right. Because you're not using peak expensive electricity. You're using much cheaper electricity, so which which the quite frankly the utilities would love for you to use. Yeah, mm-hmm. and whenever we are trying to talk to Evergy or Ameren about time of use rates, we always want to talk about the electric vehicle time of use rate and trying to encourage people to do that at night when no one else is using power. You know, makes sense. It it, it makes sense, and and you look at um, you know Missouri, we have uh, Tomsock right? Which is a storage facility. So they have water in an upper reservoir when they need it at three o'clock, they, they, um, they let it through the turbines in the bottom. It's a peaker plant. It happens very quickly, generates electricity. Then they pump it up at night, um, with, with the cheaper rates, but you could pump it up at night with wind power Mm -hmm. and essentially have a storage facility, your peaker plant that is net zero carbon. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, right. You talk about Tomsock. I talk to Jeff Mark a lot about how gravity can be used to produce energy and produce efficiencies. And there's a lot of country, there's a lot of other countries out there who are doing that. Well, and you're and what you're hopeful are on all of this stuff in SPP and Texas and MISO. Texas has coastline. Texas has tidal power. Texas has wind power. Texas has solar. Yeah, oh yeah. What what you hope is is that that these crises create innovation and, and, and Texas as a state says, our state policy is going to encourage reliability. We're gonna be content or fuel, fuel neutral on what that reliability means, but we're not gonna create barriers of entry to solar facilities or wind facilities or tidal facilities or offshore wind. We're going to encourage the transmission in order to unlock those generation assets. And we're going to say, we can't rely on natural gas uh, as much as we did because of what happened in, 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 you know, 2021. I think that, that you hope that these pushes that that you push this towards um, an investment in innovation and new technology and non-traditional fossil generation assets, and you can still you can, you can again solve the problem that you have while being huge economically beneficial to your state. Yeah. Is your application to ERCOT in? Are you going to be moving down there? Or? Oh, you know, <laughs> somebody you know somebody said somebody said oh that'd be a terrible job. I'm like, well, it's kind of not right now, right? I mean, it's so messed up that you, you probably have can't to lose. Right, you can't break it any worse than it already is. <laughs> I, I think, unfortunately, they're going to an all, they're probably going to be going to an all Texas, um, you know, because that was the complaint about some of the other directors is that they weren't from Texas, even though I think that's a huge benefit. Right. If you're not yeah. constrained by kind of the typical Texas, and, and I don't mean it, I don't mean to downplay Texas, but fresh set of eyes, fresh perspective, yeah. Yeah. certainly I think is always good for any, any organization. So yeah. Having Texas representation on the ERCOT board, I think, was really important. But also having non-Texans on the board was a good thing. And I, I don't know what they're, they're, how they're going to fix it. It's they have an opportunity here, um, and they yeah. should look at it as an opportunity. But right. you wonder that it may just be a reaction rather than, um, you know, yeah. an opportunity. I mean, I mean, to another uh, political quote, Rahm Emanuel: "Never let a crisis go to waste." Right. 
I feel like this is an opportunity to do something really incredible and maybe they will, maybe they won't. And, and, you know, to be a leader and say, we had a crisis, we're going to fix it. And, and you, because of the unique nature of Texas, you can kind of say, have everybody point to Texas and say, Oh, Texas did it right. Let's try to replicate that. And they can really truly kind of grab that mantle of being innovators and being the best at what they do. They prided themselves on the ERCOT model forever, that this was the best way to do it. Everybody else in the country has it screwed up. We, we do this better than anybody else. And in 2011 and 2021, what we realized is that there were some huge flaws in, the, in that market design and uh, they don't do it better than anybody else. And, and you know, other places that were suffering from these severe weather issues were still operating. Um, and so they've got to, they, they have to go back and rethink their approach to this kind of standalone, standalone grid. Yeah. Wow. And they can do it. I mean, they can, they can, yeah. they, 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 that's the benefit of it all being in one state is, uh, you know, you can, you can make changes relatively quickly that you can't do on a, on a multi-state basis. Right. 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 Cause you've only got the same set of decision makers. Right. The, yeah. In theory. Well, Kevin, I could do this all afternoon. I hope you come back. I don't want to take up all your time. I, can I, can you plug anything since you've, you've been so gracious with your time? Can I, can I get you to plug something? Well, you know, my company is Paladin Energy Strategies. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kevin D. Gunn, which is usually yeah. a mixture of energy and Cardinal Baseball Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Gunn on Facebook. Um, I, I, my company helps folks, you know, kind of work through the regulatory process. So right. anybody that's listening that has uh, any type of company, I'm not just, I have utilities, I've done solar, I've done grid operators, I've done wind. So it's just helping people navigate um, this very kind of complex, complex world. Um, but a lot of it's just about human relationships and, and mm -hmm. trying to figure out the best, best way to strategically think. But I, I this was a blast for me. I, I was joking that you know, not my nerd powers don't always get to be used in the Texas uh, <laughs> crisis allowed me to implement the, the, the weird nerd powers that I have. So yeah. I, I loved it and I'm happy to come on um, at any time. I will uh, to talk about stuff. We will definitely have you back on. This was amazing. I loved it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Kevin Gunn, former public service commissioner, Paladin, go check him. And he's a great follow on Twitter. No <laughs> doubt. Uh, so follow him on there too. Um, Thank you again. And I want to thank all of our listeners out there. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on all major po podcast platforms, write a review, share on your social media posts. Uh, this is James Owen with the New Missouri. I'm going to be signing out and thank you all for listening.